I'm Chris Reback. This is a special live podcast edition of Chris Reback's Conversations. Rick Wilson, the sharp-witted, wise-cracking Republican political strategist, ad maker, analyst, columnist, and crazy good tweeter, joined me in Westchester County, New York, for a live conversation about the 2020 election, impeachment, and his new book, Running Against the Devil, a plot to save America from Trump and Democrats from themselves. It was a terrific event, and we discussed everything. How Democrats can beat Trump. What has happened to Rick's fellow Republicans, the ones he calls bootlicks, yes-men, and edge-case weirdos? How endangered is our democracy? Would Democrats be better off if they, in fact, do nominate a woman? And if so, who would make for a more compelling candidate, Elizabeth Warren or Amy Klobuchar? As a bonus, we also discussed his regular Waffle House roundtables, breakfast with his other never-Trump Republican strategists, including one named George Conway. As you might expect, I asked it. At those breakfasts, does George Conway ever talk about life at home? Take a listen for Rick's answer. No surprise for anyone who's heard Rick or, better yet, followed his Twitter feed. He was at his colorful best. You may notice this particular edition of Chris Reback's Conversations carries an explicit label. Folks, it's not because of me. At the end of the event, we took questions from the audience. You'll want to hear those. Also, over the next weeks, I'll post the video from the event on chrisreback.com. Don't worry, I'll let you know once it's up. Before the conversation with Rick, though, two asks from me to you. One, I hope you like these conversations. And if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. Several more of you did over the last weeks, and it makes a big difference. Secondly, I also have a new ask. If you hear something, say something. If you like this podcast, let friends know about it. Send them a subscribe link. There are a lot of great podcasts out there, and finding them is hard. I'd appreciate your help. Okay, that's it. Here's my live podcast event with Rick Wilson. Thank you, Jill, and welcome, Westchester, to a special live podcast of Chris Rebeck's Conversations and the ongoing Rick Wilson Running Against the Devil book tour. <laughs> As you heard, uh, Rick is a political strategist, and like any strategist, I don't know if you've seen his, uh, the, the book tour, that he, but he, he knows demographics, he know, and he <laughs> is focused on the major... U.S. urban centers. He was in Manhattan. You're going to San Francisco, Los Angeles, Los Angeles Portland, Washington, D.C., Seattle, and Scarsdale, New York, of course. I, as one does. As one I did the math earlier. Those five places I named with Scarsdale mm-hmm. average 2.5 million people. So you've had... I'm smarter than the average dog. (laughs) (laughs) Not according to some of the current Republicans, but we'll we'll, we'll talk about that. (laughs) Rick, let's begin with what has to be the obvious question. What happened to you? You were a Republican your whole life. You helped elect Republicans. You finally get what Twitter says is the greatest Republican of all time, certainly since Lincoln, probably better than Lincoln. And now you jump ship. Are you the KGB agent who has gone over to the other side? Well, the complex thing about me is that I didn't change. Mm. I believe in the Constitution. I believe in the rule of law. I believe in the primacy of individual liberty. And I fear the power of the state over the lives and freedom of 
our citizens. I'm cautious about radical changes in, in the way that executive power is administered. And my former party has adopted a brand new set of philosophical principles that have abandoned everything that defined the Republican intellectual frame for 70, 80 years in this country. And those things that they now believe in, instead of the, the, the balance of power between the branches, they believe in a unified, unitary executive with unlimited power and zero accountability. Instead of servant leaders, they believe in a god king. Instead of, instead of controlling spending, they are now writing checks like drunken sailors on socialist shore leave. They have abandoned the idea that Congress and the judiciary should play a balancing role with the executive in any way. And mostly what they've done is abased and degraded themselves by reducing themselves not as independent political players and actors, but as servants, as toadies, as lackeys to Donald Trump. Okay, so, so you know them, and, and I want to get into, your book is all about how to beat them. So let's get into that in a second. Sure. But, but first, so what happened? What, what, you know, was it, did they never believe it in the first place? So. Did, did you help elect people that didn't believe it in the first place? Or uh, in people, politicians, but also people in all fields, um, go to where the bread is buttered? There are three things that drive the behavior of elected Republicans right now. Fear of Donald Trump fear of Fox News, and the fear of the mob that has come to dominate the Republican Party. Now, when Fox was a very powerful normative force to the, in the Republican Party, it wasn't a, a source of unlimited power. It still had boundaries. There were still Republicans who would go, okay, that's enough, Hannity. Okay, that's enough. But when you combine that with the celebrity power of Trump and the sudden transition of the party from being about principles to being about him, a lot of those elected officials, and I have a typology, about a third of them are actual MAGA true believers who think nationalist authoritarian populism and statism is the hot new flavor. About a third. Those are your Jim Jordans. Those are the, your, your, your Meadows. Um, they're not the brightest people you're ever going to meet. I've got to, you know, they're just not. They, they never had a hugely robust philosophical underpinning about conservatism to begin with. About a third of them are moderates or centrists, whatever you want to call it. They believe in conservative principles. They usually have an issue they care about, mm. whether it's foreign policy or economic policy or social conservatism. About a third of those guys. And they're not in love with Donald Trump. They're actually scared to death of him. Because they know that if Donald Trump tweets at them one time, their lives turn into a blazing hellscape. It's Twitter. Um, and about a third of them are hustling opportunists who don't believe in a damn thing and never have. Those guys have always been with us, okay? Let me tell you one. You guys probably think Matt Gates is a true believer in Donald Trump. Absolutely not. That guy is a hustler. He wants a big email list. He wants to be on Fox News. He doesn't believe in anything. It's like Tucker Carlson. Doesn't believe in anything. The frozen fish heir Tucker Carlson believes in Tucker Carlson making $14 million a year on Fox and having a rip-roaring time. There, that, that third of the party were always hustlers. It was always just a, a, a 
you know, flag of convenience. So, so what's bringing along minimum 40% of America, you know, sometimes 45% of sure. America, and enough of America to have gotten elected? The tribalism of our parties today is intense. It is unbelievably powerful. It is, it is so intense that even people with qualms go, mm, I don't want to leave the tribe. It's terrible. You know, a lot of Democrats, when Bill Clinton was found to be having an affair with Monica Lewinsky, they departed. They left. They were like, uh-uh, you're wrong. you got to pay the price. No. Now, you would not have that, left or right. So the tribal silos are very powerful. There's another big factor on the Republican side, and that is that Roger Ailes and Rupert Murdoch built a monster. And Fox News has a power over the Republican base when combined with Trumpism that has never been seen in American politics at all. Who the needs I, who more? Does Trump need Fox more or does Fox need Trump more? Fox needs Trump more now. Now, it didn't start that way. There was a flip sometime in 2017 where guys that I still talk to on the news side of Fox, you know, their basic life every day was, why am I not in the bathtub with my wrists open? This is misery. Um, and they hated it. Because there were legitimate day-side news reporters at Fox. Mm. And the slow ideological corrosion, because, look, Trump makes them a metric butt-ton of money. He is driving $2.3 billion in profit at Fox every year. And that is almost every penny of it from the cuckoo pants guys in the night side. Mm. So they need Trump. If Trump, you know, and Trump occasionally like checks them a little bit because you should go watch OANN instead of Fox because they're not giving me enough love. Yeah. But they, um, Rupert and Roger Ailes, Roger Ailes, love him or hate him, was a genius of, of politics and a genius of television. And the DNA of Roger and Rupert is very much in Trump's entertainment version of the presidency. So before we get into the, the actual advice that you have for Democrats, can we talk about uh, some of the things that you write and, and your writing style? I mean, sure. um, you certainly know how to turn a phrase, um, some of which I can't actually repeat to this audience. <laughs> um, on his children, they are um, Scavenger Spawn, Don Jr. and Eric, and members of the Trump crime family. Um, you call Trump the easiest lay in White House history. You call Republicans ball... Uh, no, I can't say that one. <laughs> the cabinet is made up of bootlicks, yes-men, edge-case weirdos, and corrupt satraps, which I had to Google to find out. <laughs> Interesting, they're uh, these, these ancient governors from... <laughs> yeah. Um, in the clown car Trump cabinet. Um, on the Fox lineup, these are men, parens, and they're almost all men. The jury is out on Ann Coulter. <laughs> who live and breathe for the pat on their blocky heads from Trump and will close with Senator Lindsey Graham, who does, according to you, everything but beg to shave Trump's back in his public statements. <laughs> Is this the real you? It's the real me. Yeah, yeah I, I, I write and speak that way. I, you know, it's a combination of, uh, it's a weird combination of a classical education and, and P.J. work and Mencken and Hunter S. Thompson all these weird things that influenced me coming up as a, as a reader and a writer over time. That first book changed your life. Everything yeah. Trump touches dies. It did, absolutely. What, and you said it helped you find your voice. What do you mean? It did. I, you know, I spent 30 years behind the curtain. Okay? Mm. 
I was the guy that flew in when you needed the really stinky ad at the end of the campaign to knock the other guy on his ass. I wasn't trying to be, and I'm still not, trying to be famous or well-known. I, you know, I liked my professional recognition inside my circle. That was fine. People well, maybe, maybe you'll keep trying. Maybe someday you'll be famous and, you know, maybe, uh, maybe people will know you. Keep trying. Maybe, keep maybe. trying. I'll, Twitter. You should try Twitter. I, you know, I've heard that Twitter's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Um, but... You know, and for years I articulated some, some caution flags inside my party to guys, you know, who I advised. And some of those caution flags were things like, hey, you know, we're not really helping ourselves on this health care fight. It's mm-hmm. not going to work long term. And I was part of the party that, you know, encouraged and, and successfully, by the way, um, with George W. Bush, reach out to Hispanics. We did really well. Yeah. We, we, we did really well. We were doing the right thing. We were welcoming people in the tradition of this country. We weren't playing these stupid games of saying, oh, the brown caravans are coming to rape and kill you all. Um, but, and I, and I, you know, I was, in, in a weird way, the origin story of this fight yeah. was back in 12. And it, a quote of mine got out in the wild from some conference. And I, and I said, you know, somebody asked me in this conference about gay marriage. I said, I've always been in favor of gay marriage. You know why? It's not the government's goddamn business who gets married to who, and as long as they're consenting adults. Mm-hmm. And Rush Limbaugh lost his shit with me. <laughs> and I was on the air, I I just broke the right old never try. You know, just the, the usual treatment. And maybe that's sort of like the, the, the dawn of this thing. But the fact that I'm kind of an iconoclastic guy in the way I speak and talk and communicate, yeah. and, and, and the way I did ads was not like everybody else's ad. You know, my ads were not always the dark thunder and the, and the, and the cheesy voice over like, John Smith is an evil liberal. His liberal liberalism is so liberal, he scares even liberals. I never did that kind of stuff. I did ads that knocked people Because I loved that ad. That wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't you? Chris Ryback, yeah. the truth. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I produced a lot of very infamous ads that were very effective, because they didn't always look like everybody else's. What was the most infamous? Is there one that folks would know? The that, most that people inf- could get really ticked off at you about? Oh, yeah, Max Cleland. In, uh, in the 2002 U.S. Senate race in Georgia, Georgia yeah. um, I produced an ad that, that... And Max Cleland was a Vietnam veteran who had lost three limbs, limbs in, in yeah. the war. And we ran a fact-based ad based on his votes about Homeland Security. And in 2002, everybody thought, wow, we need the Department of Homeland Security right now. It was polling at like 92%. He opposed it, and we took him out with it. It was a hard ad. It was a factual ad. Now, in the, in the imagining of what that ad is now, people say, oh, you converted him to bin Laden. You put a turban on his head. No, it was a very kind of dull ad. It was deliberately made to look kind of dull. Um, that's probably my most infamous ad. Um, but, you know, I am the, was the guy you called to do that kind of thing. So let's talk, now that you've... you've become the KGB agent, come over to the other side. Um, let's talk about this part, and let's talk about what Democrats, sure. in your view, um, need to do. And maybe, in fact, I just answered the question um, that I have, which is, why another book? You, you didn't need to write another book on why Trump has gone haywire or why Republicans have gone no. haywire. What's this book? This book is a roadmap. This book is 30 years of experience of one thing I was really good at, and that was beating Democrats. And what I've done here is put out a roadmap and a warning of exactly what Trump is going to do and exactly what the people around him are going to do. 
Now look, the people you see that are around Trump on television every day, morons. The mokes, the skells, the, you know, the, all, the, all the, the grifters. But there are a lot of guys just like me who are ride or die now with Trump. Why? They have no other option. There is no other party anymore. There's nothing else there for them. They're either working for him or they're going bankrupt. Brad Pascal's. Oh, well, well let's, Brad Pascal was making golf course websites two years before. Yeah. You know what Brad's role is? It is yeah. not to do genius social media. Brad Pascal's role is to funnel the grift back to the Trump family. Hmm. That's what the rumor in D.C. has been for a couple years That's now. That's not on his LinkedIn and I've page. Been, I've been around a few, a few, shall we say, legally adjacent to not legal uh, political things in my past. This guy is not making the money he's making on paper. It is going somewhere else. I promise you, they're not going to pay Brad Parscale $60 million for a campaign. Ain't nobody making that money, except it's going somewhere else up the chain through LLCs and whatnot. Anyway, I know how Democrats lose, because I helped build the machine that, for about a 20-year period, took away almost 2,000 Democratic elected offices at every level in this country. Until Donald Trump came along, there had been about a 20-year window where the Democrats lost about 2,000 seats, and that's state legislatures, that's county commissioners, that's sheriffs, that's congressmen, that's senators. The Republicans in the 20-year window took over 38 state legislatures. We didn't do it because we were dumb or sentimental. We did it because we were absolutely cold-eyed, bloodthirsty. We did exactly what was necessary to win. I use this book as a roadmap to explain how we did it. And in the presidential scale, I use this book to explain the three big rules of every campaign for president. One, it's a referendum on the incumbent. All re-elections are a referendum on the incumbent. Do you want this guy for four more years or something else? Do you want this guy for four more years or someone else? You look back at our recent history. And in 2012, Barack Obama was up for re-election. There were things that were not great about the economy. It was still on the upswing, but it wasn't perfect. There were things that had outraged America, health care, a lot of other things that were socially division, social divisions in the country. But America decided they still wanted Barack Obama. 2008, you know, you had this guy who came in basically running as a suburban technocratic kind of moderate liberal. No matter what guys like me said about him, Barack Obama never really was. If Barack Obama was this crazy socialist sleeper agent, he was terrible at his job. <laughs> so that big picture of a referendum, it should always be in your head, okay? The, the painful thing in my life, I worked for George Bush 41, my first job in, 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 in the administration of George Bush 41. And when he lost to Bill Clinton, I was shocked. And everyone was like, we won the Cold War. Mm. We, won the, we, we knocked Saddam out of Kuwait and brought the boys home. What the hell? Well, the referendum became not about security or the Cold War. Economy. It became about the economy, famously. And so the referendum that always occurs in every re-election campaign, this guy or somebody else. Democrats will not prosper by falling into the trap of talking about policy. Policy is poison. You know why? Because Donald Trump has 100 guys like me. When you put out your 600-page health care plan, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get a room full of nerds. I'm going to make them read it because I'm not going to read it. 
I'm going to make them read the 600-page healthcare plan. I'm going to find the three or four things that I can demagogue the hell out of and scare the crap out of people. You know, Green New Deal, you think, wow, that's wonderful. Guess what most Americans think about Green New Deal? I can't fly on an airplane, I can't eat meat. Okay? (laughs) Trust me, I can turn... I can turn Little Bo Peep into an attack ad. Don't even start me on a 600-page healthcare plan. Have you ever seen her with that stick? I know, that right? Like she... The brutality and cruelty of Bo Peep. And, yeah, and, and, Little and Bo animal, Peep, animal the cruelty. truth. <laughs> so, Wait, so that's number one. So that's number one. Referendum. The second part is that whether you love it or hate it, the Electoral College is the only game in town. You can fantasize all you want about getting rid of it. You can think, this is a terrible, antiquated, blah, blah, blah. Too bad. There is no miracle. There is no shortcut. I don't care if you get a gazillion more votes. If you lose the Electoral College, you have lost the race. And because of that, in 35 states in this country right now, the race is over. I know how California will vote, okay? I know how Mississippi will vote. 35 states fall into that category. If the Democrats spend one dime or one day in those states, unless they're there in California or New York to pick up giant sacks of money, they are committing political malpractice. You have to run this campaign in Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Florida, North Carolina. You've got to go out there and fight it out where the fight is. There are about 15 states you could put in play rationally. About six of those are the core states. You guys all know them. You heard them. You woke up on election day thinking Hillary was going to win them and then went, ah! that night. Not, not everyone here. I'm not everyone here. One. <laughs> uh, anyway. Okay, so, that, so that's so the electoral two. college. The electoral college yeah. is the only game. It's the only game in town. The, the third big thing is you've got to target the, the voters you can actually move. Okay? Mm. If you're the Democrats... There's a temptation to try to go out and juice up turnout with young voters. And everybody loves this. They chase the dragon on this all the time. Okay? They think, this time, this will be the one where we get 25% turnout from young voters. It's going to be amazing. We're going to do it. We're going to rock the vote. And every time, young voters do what young voters do, which is sleep in on election day. You know who votes in this country? Old people. You know who really votes in this country? Really old people. You know who votes in Florida? People that have to be carried in in a walker with an oxygen tank. They vote like 99% of the time. Anybody know what, what year the peak young voter turnout in the last 40 years was? Was it Bill Clinton? Anybody? Barack Obama? No. The peak voter turnout for young voters was 18.1%. It was in 1988 with those two young, sexy guys, Mike Dukakis and George H.W. Bush. Okay? <laughs> So young voter turnout is a, is a dragon they shouldn't chase. But they do have to go after people like the Obama-Trump voters. They do have to go after the suburban women who are drifting away from the GOP at a very fast rate. They have to catch them. They have to not frighten them to death. They have to sometimes not say what's on their mind. Um, and they have to go out and find ways to reach those people and convince them that the change from Donald Trump to the Democratic nominee is a less risky, less frightening, less objectively terrifying thing to do. So I'm going to ask you about the various candidates, because you have points of view on them, um, and which ones will and will not, are and are Mm -hmm. not, scaring folks. But in the meantime, uh, I read recently uh, that Trump can't win, 
But the Democrats can sure as hell lose. Yep. That's my my theory of the case. Because, look, Hillary Clinton lost because her campaign... Hey! (laughs) Hillary Clinton lost because her campaign took their foot off the gas. They decided they were going to win Wisconsin and Ohio and Pennsylvania. You know where they were going? California. Give me a break. Big rallies in big cities. Give me a break. They should have been in the suburbs of the Rust Belt. They should have been out there hustling. They took their foot off the gas. Measuring curtains? They were measuring curtains in the White House. They were picking out office space. And that is an absolutely deadly political conceit, and you, and you want to never do it. And I warn, I've warned people about this many times. Don't start declaring what you're going to do on day one until you have a day one. You don't stop hustling. You know, you never get back in a campaign, ever. Now, you can always raise more money. You can always run more ads. You can always get more volunteers. You never get a day back. You never get another day. The clock is always running. Election day is going to be on election day. That's it. You have one day to sell your product. You either sell it or you don't. And the mistake of the Democrats in 2016 was... The, watching national polls and not the state polls and deciding they had it in the bag. So let's go back to your uh, rule number one. It's a referendum on Trump. Yep. H- how do you make it a referendum? How do Democrats make it a referendum on Trump? Because don't we all know already? Isn't everyone's mind made up? We all, you know, we all know who he is and they're pl- the people who love it and the people who don't like it. How are you going to make a referendum on something that everyone already knows? It's a game of small numbers. You also should never presume that voters are paying as much attention to politics as we do. Because 65% of voters will not even pretend to focus on this election until September. Mm. A narrower slice will not make up their minds. About 40% will not make up their minds. They will drift back and forth. They will ping pong. They will be watching the coverage and the craziness and the ads and all the advocacy until the last three or four days so this campaign is going to be fought, and because there's early voting, the campaign's going to be fought out for about three, three or four weeks ahead of the end of the election. And people do not pay attention. People are not as politically engaged as, as folks who would come out to something like this. Most people in this country have had the luxury of not being politically engaged. It's a great gift in many ways. As someone who's marginally politically engaged, I noticed that last night there was a uh, Democratic debate, the last Democratic debate uh, before the Iowa caucus. And the most compelling moment, I hate to say it, um, surrounded what is to me um, a a ridiculous question to many people, can a woman be president? Um, Elizabeth Warren uh, pointed out, uh, winningly I thought, that uh, you know, the two women on the stage had never lost, and the men had. It was. It, I thought it was a great. I thought it was a great line. Getting past the question of whether a woman can be president, right. which I think, should the Democrats nominate a, a woman? Well, the Democrats should nominate whoever the hell can win, and and you can make an argument. You can make several arguments for the top tier of the candidates. And I, one of the things I say in this book, and I, and I really mean it, I'm not trying to pick the nominee. I don't care, I, and I'm not telling the Democrats to you know, abandon their ideological predicates. I am saying occasionally, don't talk about them out loud. But, <laughs> so I'm not trying to pick the nominee. There are, let's say there are basically five or six serious people in the race. Mm-hmm. 
the wild cards of Mike Bloomberg and Tom Steyer, I think, will and have altered the race rather profoundly. Uh, I don't think Steyer really makes much of a difference yet. And I, don't, and I think Bloomberg does, but Steyer really doesn't. Um, although he can stare. Did you guys watch the debate? <laughs> I kept looking up and I kept thinking, Tom Steyer's trying to like, give an x-ray of my spleen or something. <laughs> um, look, if you designed a candidate from the ground up, here's, here's, here's who I want from the ground up. If I could like, make someone de novo, I'd love a woman veteran from the Rust Belt. Okay? Now, I'm not going to get that, sadly, but that would be a great sort of demographic. Well, you blend. could have a Warren Buttigieg ticket. Woman, you could. Right? You could. Um, I think, though, that a lot of this is the big proxy fight going on here for the future of the Democratic Party. Yeah. Is do they go the AOC Bernie route or do they go the Clinton-Obama route. Clinton and Obama were both, at their heart, fundamentally centrist Democrats, no matter what my side said about them. They also uh, had the four most successful presidential elections in the Democratic uh, field since JFK. Um, And they had a a deep political resonance, generationally speaking. Mm -hmm. There is not a JFK or a Bill Clinton or a Barack Obama in this field. And so the question is, who is the best messenger as a referendum against Trump? Who is the best fighter against Trump? If this was going to be a policy debate, shit, I'd have Elizabeth Warren all day long. She's going to come in with a cartload of books. This she, is wrote, not, she wrote most of them. Yeah. This is, a, this is, however, a barroom fight with chains and baseball bats. And so I'm not positive that she is going to survive her battle with Bernie. You know, they, they, right now they're fighting like two hogs in a sack. Um, and and they, 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 they may be self-destructing each other. So that, that long-running debate about does the Democratic Party go far, far, far to the left and run on socialism may be deferred because they may cancel each other out. Joe Biden, as, as hapless as Joe Biden seems sometimes... He has a great asset, and that's name ID. And I can tell you, I go to a focus group, and I ask about Joe Biden. I ask undecided, moderate, centrist Democrats, Republicans, hey, what about Joe Biden? I never hear things like, he scares the crap out of me. It's like, oh, he's kind of weird sometimes, but he's Joe. You know, he's just Joe. In a weird way, he's like, a, like the affirmative antithesis of Trump. He is, the, he is the friendly version of that. He's a bit populist. He's a bit rough around the edges. You don't always know where he's going to come out of left field on something. But he's not, uh, he doesn't strike people as a dangerous choice. A, a lot of the lower-tier candidates you know, may have great future. I, look, I think Amy Klobuchar yeah. is almost great. Mm. I like her a lot. There's something about me that, like, I don't mind that she's not super polished. She comes from the people, and you can still see it on her. Um, Mayor Pete is very smart, very accomplished guy, um, has had a real, very steep, almost impossibly steep hill to climb with African-American voters. And there are a lot of theories on why that is the case. There are a lot of, I think some of them are spurious, some of them are not, but I think that a lot of his difficulty 
will iterate forward. If you make him the nominee or the VP, are you saying to a group that has shown great skepticism to him, which, you know, and that's also a problem with Bernie. He's a big African-American gap with Bernie. And do you really take out from the chessboard the most active group of your voters, the ones who are the most reliable Democratic voters out there, specifically African-American women, hmm. who do not have a great love for Bernie. They're, they're, not, they're not, shall we say, Bernie-centric. Um, not feeling the burn. Not feeling the burn, no. But, and I, I will say this, and I, I, get, I get an enormous, enormous amount of grief for this. My Twitter feed is a, is a radioactive hellscape of Bernie bros. <laughs> if the nominee is Bernie Sanders, my Republican friends who are still on the other side working for Trump, they are already cutting ads, clapping their hands, doing a victory dance. They're buying cases of champagne. That's their fantasy. They can't wait to run against Bernie. If I was still doing this work on the other side, oh, my God, I'd have a field day. Bernie Sanders will lose 44 or 45 states. He will win New York, Massachusetts, California, and Oregon. He might lose Washington. He will get destroyed. He will get wrecked. It will destroy the Democratic Party because he's Jeremy Corbyn. And the British just realized this. A profoundly unpopular Boris Johnson beat Jeremy Corbyn, who should have had it in the bag. Labor controls basically 65% of the territory of the voting pool in Britain, and he got his ass beat because he was so far out there in cuckoo land. So that's a technical term. <laughs> you, you, you call Bernie uh, Trump reinsurance. Trump, yeah. Trump re-election re insurance. Trump re-election insurance. Yeah. yeah, I really believe it. Yeah. And like I said, I will get no end of grief. The Bernie bros, just, they are, and I, I would like to thank the Bernie bros for giving us a powerful lesson of who they are. 12.5% of Bernie Sanders voters in the primary in 2016 voted for Donald Trump. You work that math out. These people are arsonists. They are not progressives. Let's talk just a little bit more about one fellow who you glossed over, but who I think, because of where we are located, yeah. um, there's a lot of interest in. Mike Bloomberg. Sure. Is there any chance that my, What about his money? And, and you, one of the things you write about is all of the money that the sitting, a sitting president can, oh, yeah. right? I think you said that easily going to be seven fifty a billion dollar campaign. I, I think Trump can raise a billion dollars in billion. small Fun, dollar donations. In small dollar donations. Bloomberg can raise a billion dollars by in going to the one, ATM. Yeah, by going yeah. to the ATM. <laughs> and, and he said he and he said he would. Yeah. So, it, and can he be viable as a candidate? And he has said that if he isn't the candidate, he will put that money behind whoever it, it is. Well, God bless. And you know, in the in the phrase of the political philosophers, Depeche Mode, everything counts in large amounts. And Mike Bloomberg is spending an... I thought they said people are people. They also said that. Um, Mike Bloomberg is spending money at a scale we have never seen yeah. before. We don't know, and, and I've actually been asking this question of my data science guys, we don't know what's going to happen with all that money. Is there a saturation level that we've... Because nobody's ever been able to achieve that saturation level before. Theoretically, we know there's a point where people go, for the love of God, stop running ads. Yeah. But we don't know it. And... So far, he seems to have a ceiling somewhere around 15%. It may be higher. It may be lower. We don't know that answer yet. That is the black box of this, of this equation right now. We don't know how that spend is going to affect this field. In, in the end, 
Does the primary hurt the Democrats? Oh, God, yes. Oh, look, if you had a real Democratic Party, and, and God bless Tom Perez, but the man cannot organize a two-car motorcade. <laughs> if you had a real Democratic Party that could exercise discipline over the candidates and the party, you would never have put 27 people on a stage. You would never have done that. You would also have gone to Bernie and said, it's time to go upstate to a farm where you can run and run. <laughs> because he drags the party. Look, the reality of Democrats in the country, why do Republicans beat Democrats all over the country for 20 years until Trump came along? Simple. Most Democrats in the country, out in the world, outside of New York and Boston and San Francisco and Los Angeles. The, the places you're going to visit? Yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> I know my market. Um, the, those folks are moderate. They're moderate Democrats. They're pro-life Democrats all over Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Ohio. How's that happen? I thought the party was completely pro-choice. Well, some of those people aren't, and Republicans have been able to steal them because they vote in ways that are not predictable. They're not, there's not this hom homogeneous, single ideological <coughs> mass out there. The country's still a, a, a big mosaic of states and areas and regions and parties that are not all the same. And if you're talking about something from a top-down, you know, rigid, central control-style ideological framework, you cut off your ability to win in places. Look, one of the ways Republicans won, you know, we helped elect a governor in Vermont four times, for God's sake. We didn't win because the guy was a right-wing Newt Gingrich nut. He was a moderate. And now there were other people who were like, I can't believe you're running someone so far to the left. Too bad. We won. Win. That's the thing. Go win first. Which is one of the points that you make about the 2018 Democratic House races. Yes. They ran candidates that could win in their districts. Right. Connor Lamb, yeah. who Pennsylvania. is probably in Pennsylvania 18, 17 now, they've, they changed the seating numbers. Connor Lamb is indistinguishable from a Republican in a whole bunch of ways, except the D after his name and that he voted for Nancy Pelosi for Speaker. Now, the question Democrats have to ask themselves is, do we like his ideology? Yes or no. You don't have to say yes or no. But the real question is, do you want to keep that seat? Because he kept that seat. He won that seat. And you can't necessarily win that seat with somebody who comes in and says, I'm the Green New Deal, blah, blah, blah. It's intensely Catholic. It's working class. It's semi-rural. There are hunters there. And you know, you're not going to win with a guy who's going to win in Manhattan. I want to ask about a couple of, <clears throat> want to ask about a couple of uh, current events mm -hmm. before we open it up to uh, some audience Q&A. Sure. Uh, one, um, you may have heard uh, the president was impeached. Why, yes, he was. Yes. And you, forever and ever. Forever and ever. Uh, and uh, against, that was against, of course, your advice. The Democrats went ahead and did it. Well, I will say this. Yeah. Writing the book... The book closed in August. We had to turn in the final draft in August. And, of course, Ukraine happens right after that. Yeah. And I had to throw a huge hissy fit to, like, throw a paragraph about Ukraine in there after it was already in production. But, and they were great about it, thank God. But I was a, I'm a skeptic on impeaching Donald Trump because you think he's an asshole. I mean, if that was the grounds, it would, it would be done. But if that were the grounds, a lot of people in this room would be impeached. Oh, hell, me too. <laughs> me for sure. Um, but I was a skeptic because you can't get to two-thirds in the Senate. There's no scenario where you get to two-thirds for removal from office. Mm. The utility of impeachment 
is removal. The shame part of impeachment, where you, where you impeach him, but he's not removed. Does anyone in this room think Donald Trump experiences shame as an emotion? Because <laughs> he doesn't. He actually will turn this and use it as a badge of honor. He's going to raise a lot of money off of impeachment. But the Ukraine situation was a much brighter line with a much clearer evidentiary trail than we'd ever had before. And so he deserved it. And the fight in the Senate, which, you know, uh, as much as Nancy Pelosi is sort of this demonic figure in the GOP, and God knows when I did that, I ran a thousand ads with like, John Smith and Nancy Pelosi, hand in hand liberals, you know, but. That's where you got the devil in, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) But she's run impeachment very well. She's, she's played her cards right. She's called the bluff of Mitch McConnell a few mm-hmm. times, and he's yeah. a good bluffer and a good card player. So, um, look, I don't think he's... I, there's still no scenario where they get to two-thirds for removal. He will be impeached forever. It's a stain. It's a scar. It's the no-regrets tattoo across the chest. It's, you know. Uh, second current events question related. Um, your former client, Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> Uh, in this room sits a lot of folks who were here on sure. 9-11. Absolutely. And we all remember that Rudy led this city and led this country. He did. What happened? I will say this. Yeah, what happened? I went to work for Rudy in 1997 in the re-election campaign. It was a truly inspiring moment in New York City. You saw the beginnings of this economic turnaround, this cultural renaissance, this moment where the streets were clean, the porn shops were being cleaned up, the guys on the street were not able to harass tourists. It was a moment, and it, there was something about it that was just luminous. And I, even at the time, thought of Rudy as Batman. You don't always have to like Batman's tactics. Batman can be kind of rough around the edges. Batman can be kind of an asshole. But you need a Batman sometimes for a tough problem. And... On 9-11, there was a single moment in this country where Rudy Giuliani displayed true civic heroism. He unified this country at a moment. That one press conference was vital. It was unbelievably consequential. And if that's where this stopped, people would name high schools after Rudy Giuliani until the sun turned into a black cinder. If that's where it stopped, Rudy would be an exemplar in this country of leadership. Unfortunately, Donald Trump corrupts everything in his orbit. My first book, Everything Trump Touches Dies, uh, there were a lot of cases in the early going, but I don't think any of them is going to be as tragic as the end of Rudy because of his service to Trump. And there are a lot of us who were around him a long time who don't talk to him anymore, and who have been baffled by the moral decline and the, and the, you know, look, everybody gets old. Time comes for us all. But Rudy has always been a sharp, acute, energetic guy. But he's, I think he's in such deep water now, and I think he's in such legal peril now. Mm. I mean, the, the, the painful irony of a guy who, while he was at the Southern District of New York, was wrapping up the mafia, rolling up organized crime across the city, going after corruption on Wall Street, going after money laundering and scumbags. 
is now under investigation by the Southern District of New York because he's involved in scumbags and money laundering and all this other crap that surrounds Trump and the Ukraine scandal. It is a, it is a Greek tragedy. And the, 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 like I said, he will be probably the best-known case of ETTD in the end. Everything Trump touches, touches dies. <laughs> um, and for me, it's painful to watch. It's painful to watch because I think he had a moment where he could have ch- taken that leadership and that, and that heroism from 9-11 and built something different than what happened. When, when's the last time you talked it's to him? It's 16. It's been a couple years now. So, it's, and I, do, I think it is a tragic, he, he's a, it's a truly tragic case. And what Rudy doesn't realize yet is that Donald Trump has already thrown him off the boat. He's already drowning. He just doesn't know it. He still thinks, you know, even the, the other day there were articles like, oh, Rudy's coming back on the team and blah, blah, blah. No, he's not. No, he's not. He's on the ice floe right now, drifting off toward the polar bears. It's done. Okay, get your uh, questions ready, please. And while folks are um, getting ready, will you, uh, will you tell everyone, for folks who might not know, um, what is the Lincoln Project? Sure. And why did your first ad call Republican Colorado Senator Cory Gardner impotent? Well, you're pulling that, punches again, right? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> That actually wasn't our first ad. Our oh, first ad was about was called the MAGA Church, a play on the word mega church, of evangelicals and their service to Trump, and basically reminding them that the man they worship as their golden calf is a guy who screws porn stars, is an idolater in every possible way, believes in one God and that God is Mammon, and so we took a good hard pop at him in that regard, and we went after Cory Gardner this week because yeah. Cory Gardner knows better. He's not a dumb man. But he is blocking witnesses in the Senate. He's working as one of Trump's tackles and guards in the Senate to prevent an actual hearing of the evidence and witnesses in this case. And so the Lincoln Project, which is a group of uh, outcast, apostate Republican, you know, former, former Republican guys. And there aren't a lot of us, okay? You could sit us around a table in a Waffle House, generally. <laughs> but it's me, Steve Schmidt, Rich Galen, George Conway, John Weaver. You know, all of us who have been national campaign guys over the last 20, 30 years um, and who have done a lot of races. And, you know, it's a kind of Liam Neeson thing. We have a specific set of skills. <laughs> and, and the folks that we used to work for are now getting a little wake-up call. And, you know, we called Corey weak and impotent because... That's what he is. We're not going to pull punches with these people. We're not going to pretend that, oh, well, just because we, we, we liked you before, now that you're off in service to a man who is frankly corrosive and destructive to this country, you don't get a pass. The same hard hits that used to come to the other team, you know what? If you're going to empower Donald Trump, if you're going to be a servant of Donald Trump and not of the people, we're going to come visit you. Not for nothing, when you're sitting at the Waffle House... <clears throat> With George Conway. <laughs> Does he ever talk about life at home? Who knows the secrets of the human heart? <laughs> Pancakes. <laughs> Smothered. Okay. Uh, we've got some questions. Uh, all right, yeah. all right. Uh, first, I want to uh, thank you for all that you're doing. I love hearing people like you and Max Boot and Steve Schmidt. Thank you. The question I have, however, is... 
uh, given that we have a limited amount of people to, to appeal to, like you said, those suburban women in, in, mm-hmm. uh, in the Rust Belt, and people like you are screaming from the rooftops about this, it doesn't sway the polls at all. How do we win? How do we convince those people? What do we tell them? Facts obviously don't matter anymore. Well, this look, impeachment doesn't matter. The national, first off, I tell people this like a religious mantra. Don't look at national polls. Don't ever look at a national poll. If I see a national poll, I, I, I will occasionally like mm, side-lie it. But I watch state polls. And this is a game of very small numbers. We're going to be out working to appeal to very small numbers. Trump won this election by 77,000 votes in three swing states, 109,000 votes in four swing states, 161,000 votes in five swing states. This is a game of small numbers. We're trying to pick off very discreet targets come the election. We're going to be working very hard to do that. We know how to do data targeting. We know how to do ad targeting. We know how to address people with messages that we, we are hopeful are going to move some votes and to make Trump a disqualified candidate with a lot of these groups that we're going after. Thank you. Thank you, Rick, and thanks, uh, Chris. Um, clearly, your prescription for getting rid of Trump is important, and hopefully it works. What is your prescription for the Senate and the current leader? Well, look, the Senate is a high hill. <clears throat> but I can tell you there are five seats in the Senate right now, and none of those states are particularly um, deep red. And the prescription for the Senate is to go after people like Cory Gardner, Martha McSally, Susan Collins, and there are a handful of others to put those seats in play. But there is a bigger effect you can accomplish. If you put those seats in danger, if Mitch McConnell thinks that any one of those combinations of seats will lose him the majority, he will gut Donald Trump like a hog. He will throw him off the boat so fast and let the sharks eat him. Mitch McConnell believes in one thing, and that is Mitch McConnell's control of the U.S. Senate. There's a scenario where the Democrats don't get everything they want in the world, where the Senate stays in Republican hands, but you get rid of Trump because McConnell kills him off for you. Isn't the worst case. (laughs) Um, But we're not there yet. It's a high hill. The Democrats need to continue to try to recruit good candidates and and work in the states on those candidates. And with so many presidential campaigns, it's been difficult for Democratic Senate candidates to raise the money they need. And, you know, Mitch McConnell is going to raise for his five or six vulnerables somewhere between 200 and $300 million. Oh, wait, how much did Mike Bloomberg spend so far? Oh, about $200 million. Could have had the Senate for that money. So it's a real question of, uh, of resources and pressure, and do you find ways to make them vulnerable because of Trump? And it's an argument I've made today on, on Nicole Wallace's show, is that these guys in the trial in the Senate a lot of them are under pressure from McConnell, like, let's get it over with. Let's vote no and but. They know there's more evidence coming. With Trump, it's always more, there's always more coming. There's never a bottom to the, to the trash. So, you know, it's a, McConnell's a tough nut to crack. He's a very, very canny, smart political leader and has a lot of money and people around him to help him. But it's not as easy a skate as he might have thought otherwise. And... And what did your grandma say about cutting hogs? The cut hog squeals loudest, okay? (laughs) And you'll know when these guys start to complain to McConnell publicly 
there are, there are a couple phases of, of this. There's the furrowed brow. Then there's the deep concern. Then there's the troubled. Then there's the worried. Then there's the, McConnell needs to not do this or I'm going to lose my seat. We're only in the middle of that pack right now. Sue Collins is scooching a little closer to the, oh, my God, uh, line right now. And Cory Gardner is over it in a panic. Um, we were kind of throwing a boat anchor at him this week. Yes? Thank you for doing this uh, to both of you. Really appreciate it. Question is, do you think the timing of the impeachment process uh, being so close to the 2020 elections has something to do, has anything to do with how Republicans in the Senate would react Meaning that if he were to be removed from office, there's obviously not enough time for the Republican Party to put together a real candidate to compete. So do you think that – so it, it sort of forces their hand to say, we may think he should be out for these purposes, but if we do remove him from office, then whatever the, whoever the Democrats uh, nominate is a shoo-in because we don't have time to put together a real campaign. So do you think if this had happened a year earlier, uh, then it may have actually changed some of the Republican votes in the Senate? I, it's an interesting counterfactual, but I don't think so, um, because most of them, a year ago, knew that Trump would have gone after them personally and gotten primary candidates against them. Remember, the, the primary deadlines, the filing deadlines in a lot of states are approaching in March, early March. I'm, I have a prediction. Lindsey Graham, who has been so up Donald Trump's rear end, he can see daylight, the filing deadline in South Carolina, I believe, is March 5th. Mm. I think you might see, when he's no longer afraid of a primary, that Lindsey might have a slightly different attitude. Because, again, he's not dumb, and the fear of Trump's tweets and getting a primary opponent is enormously, was enormously powerful for them. Mm. Yes, sir? Uh, here's something I heard on the morning Joe that contradicts me. What you said. Sure. Uh, should I repeat what I just said? Or? Sure. Sure. Um, he, this goes back to your Bernie theory yeah. that, that he would lose 44 states. Um, that the thing that Democrats want to do is energize the base and get as many people out as possible. And in the Rust Belt area, uh, Bernie has a certain, uh, uh, people are, have a certain attraction to his authenticity, his. Uh, his ability to deal with the working class people, and that therefore uh, he'll win more than 44, uh, lose more than. I, be I better than you said. I understand your point, um, but it's not really based on the numbers and the, the, the sort of the underpants gnome theory of Bernie. You know, worker appeal, victory. There's somewhere in the middle, you got to do another thing. And you've also got to ask yourself is there a countervailing pressure? that Bernie brings in other places, aside from the Rust Belt, where it makes them more vulnerable. I mean, look, North Carolina is not the hardest R state anymore. Can Bernie win North Carolina? I don't think so. Bernie's far, far, far to the left. He's also not a Democrat. And the secret, the dirty little secret of America is we like our socialism not called that. <laughs> we, like, we like our socialism couched in the form of Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, disability, blah, blah, blah. Bernie going out and using the affect and the tropes that he does, it's a bit much for most voters. And I'm going to say this, too. Bernie is 375 years old. <laughs> he just had a heart attack. I promise you, by the end of this, they will, they, the, 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 the degree to which they will split him off from those working class voters will shock you. They will split him off on guns, on the environment, 
on everything else under the sun. They will split him off by saying, Bernie's Medicare for All plan takes away your union health coverage. They'll do it. And that will, you'll, you'll be shocked how quickly they can turn that working class appeal around. The other thing is, a lot of those working class voters, including Democrats in those Rust Belt states, you know where they get their news? From Fox. And they're not progressives, they're not, they're not liberals, they're behavioral Democrats overall, but they're not as far to the left as Bernie. And the working class argument, it, it's, it's not quite there. Yes, sir? So, um, in, uh, the Democrats, they, um, with John Kerry, it was swift boat, Hillary, it was emails, and now we're seeing with Joe Biden, Ukraine. So is it possible that whoever the Democrats nominate, even if it is the strongest candidate, that the Republicans will find a scandal small and blow it out of proportion and make it equivalent to Trump's big scandals? Um, let me just say this. It's a technical term we use in politics, and that is, duh. <laughs> They're going to turn whatever they find. Oh, my God, he got a parking ticket, this law-breaking, scoff-law scumbag. They're going to turn everything. And, and the Democrats need to be ready for this. They need to be prepared for this because the guys on Trump's team that are still around, and I, like I said, I don't mean the guys that you see on TV. I mean the political operatives, the media consultants, the pollsters, the field guys, they're going to run the nastiest campaign you've ever seen. It's going to make Hillary look like Little Miss Sunshine. Okay, let's do just a couple more. Uh, friend of the pod uh, and political wire is here where the uh, Tagans, right there, where, where we are streaming live right now. Hey, Tagan. Hey, hey, Rick. How are you? Good. Uh, thanks. It was a great conversation, guys. Thank you. Um, so, so, so what you say makes a lot of sense for Democrats, you know, kind of go after these swing voters go after these people who voted for Trump last time, but are at least, you know, possibly could vote for Democrats this time. Makes a lot of sense. And you go back to 2012, and that was the autopsy of the Republican loss mm -hmm. in 2012. Go after these areas, these people, these voters that were disaffected. Go after Latino voters. Mm -hmm. Go after women. Unless I miss something, Trump didn't do that in 2016. Trump he, was he completely went opposite. He went after people who didn't vote. There was, yes, there's a lot of that. Now, <clears throat> Trump is sui generis because we've never had a candidate before who had a 15-year commercial running for him mm. on The Apprentice. Americans voted for the guy they saw on that show. And so a lot of those low-propensity low voters, they're high-propensity TV viewers. And so what they see on TV? They saw a guy who was smart, a great negotiator, a great businessman. He was always saying, I'm a billionaire, all these things. And they voted for that TV character, and that was, they were able to appeal to those low-propensity voters and identify a lot of them also through digital uh, targeting and go after the, the folks that didn't turn out. Now, look, the digital tools are available for everybody. The, the, those things are out there now. You know, the, the technology is agnostic as to which party is using it. So the Democrats, the Democrats need to up their game on that significantly. Look, Obama blew us out of the water in 2008. And the Republicans, we invented micro-targeting back in the day. They took it all the way up to a whole new level. And in 2000, like a couple weeks after Election Day, I was locked in a room with a bunch of mathematicians and, and CS guys because a, a group of conservative investors 
was paying us to reverse engineer the model. We didn't use that. We didn't fix that problem in 2012 and learned a painful lesson. Well, guess what? The RNC had fixed it by the time Trump came along, and they turned over the keys. Gave it to them. And they went after those low-pro voters. But, yeah. Let's, let's do one more question, and then uh, uh, Rick's, we get to see Rick again later tonight on uh, CNN. Yeah, on uh, Lemon. Yeah, so let's hear from a few. Hey, Rick. How are Hi. you? Good. I'm Kathleen. I just wanted to introduce myself because you and I are friends, so okay. just wanted to know that. Good. Um, so my question, my first question is, um, genuinely, who is running this country right now? Like, who's sending the tweets? Who's writing in Farsi? Is it Scavino? Is it Kellyanne? Okay. I read over the weekend it's Pompeo. It's Jared and Ivanka. It is. It's to a lesser degree. Oh, look, Scavino is an errand boy. Okay. He's not a Trump. You know, Trump still sees him as what he is. He's a caddy. Only instead of a nine iron, he has the Twitter machine. Um, Jared and Ivanka run the country. Um, Tom Barack, Trump's buddy, runs the country. Jay Sekulow runs the country. Tom Fitton runs the country. Um, and, of course, Sean Hannity and a cadre of producers at Fox run the country. That's who runs the country. And everything else that you see is, is just a side effect. It's like the products of radioactive decay. You know, there's the radiation itself, and then there's, there's all the waste. So. so I know that was the last question, but no, since we're in Westchester, yeah, can I just ask you, what is the deal with Rob Astorino, and how did he become this? You know, Tony? I used to be friendly with Rob. We used to I be know, friends. I've seen you debate him, yeah, and I can I see you guys are friendly. And now I have to take his hide off every time I'm on TV with him. That's I have to crazy. beat him like a drum. No, look, he's fallen prey to what every other guy in the Republican circles has fallen prey to. He wants Trump's approval. And... You know, they will abase themselves beyond words and reason to do so. Okay. I've, I've been told we're allowed to do more questions. Let's do a couple so, more you know questions. What? Turns out no one here cares whether you make your uh, hit with Don Lemon later tonight. <laughs> yes, good. Thank you. You know, I need to go home a little happier than What's after that? listening to you tonight. She needs can to go home a little happier. A little good happier? reason that I can smile when I get home after listening to you discuss Trump. You know, there's one benefit of Donald Trump. He will always continue to embarrass himself every day. And there's a possibility at some point that even Donald Trump steps in it so deep that he can't wait out. But you don't think so. Look, I, I think the Democrats have a very narrow path. It will require enormous discipline in their campaign. It will require enormous discipline in their candidate. They will have to swallow their desire to ram a top-down version of their ideas down people's throats because there are a lot of things that Democrats want that scare the hell out of voters. And that's just... It, it, voters specifically in the targeted swing states and demographics they need to get to. And, you know, I, I will tell you this. The minute Medicare for All became a talking point, I went in the field with a poll. Checked it. Went, did a focus group. Medicare for All contains a poison pill. Two of them, actually. The one is that you can say legitimately Medicare for All will end private health insurance. You know who doesn't want to have their private health insurance taken away? Republican women in the suburbs, Democratic women in the suburbs, women in the suburbs who have children, women in the suburbs who have educations, women in the suburbs, also women, also, also, um, also everyone who lives in the suburbs. You kind of need those people. Medicare for All sounds great on paper. 
And it is easily demagogued and turned into an attack so powerful that even people who dislike Trump will swallow hard and go, oh, I just want to, I don't want my kids to have to go to a government health care center 14. And it scares them. You know, th- these voters are not looking for radical change. They're not looking for a democratic Trump. They're looking for something that gets them back to a sense of normality and rationality and an end to cruelty and an end to capriciousness. So. Um, in spite of, or just whoever the Democratic um, nominee is in the next election, and given all the bullet points you've mentioned mm-hmm. about ways the Democrats can combat the, the Republican push, how do the Democrats combat Russian interference when our government refuses to a, do it's anything? It's a hell of a problem. And, and it is, a, it is a, a problem that I think the only people that can actually address it won't address it. Mark Zuckerberg could fix this problem tomorrow. He could flip a switch, change 10 lines of code, it would be over. They could fix this tomorrow. So when Donald Trump is reelected, remember Mark Zuckerberg put him there. And Facebook should be burned to the damn ground if they won't address this problem. If they won't face this problem, they should be burned to the damn ground. Yes, sir. Uh, you mentioned Fox News, mm-hmm. which is obviously horrendous. But what about the idea of people going on Fox News to talk to these people? I mean, these people are not the average person. Not that stupid. But let me, they, have, they have needs. They have wants. What about someone like you, other people go on and talk to the Fox uh, viewers and talk to them and, and you know, Fox will ahead. select for their viewership or for their, for their visitors, for their guests, mm-hmm. liberals only and, and people who are opposed to Trump only if they – um, are either stupid or if they are part of a sort of caricature of liberalism. They want the wild, fuzzy-haired professor types. They want the, 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 the geek, you know, pajama boy types. They don't want people who will come in there and punch them in the face. They don't want people who will come in there and make a strong, passionate argument. So they're never going to let that break the vapor lock on their chamber where they keep the Fox viewer. They keep them fed. Look, Fox is a, is a machine built to stoke outrage and to stoke a sense of inferiority and separation from the rest of society. They're very careful not to let any oxygen into that tank. Didn't Eric Swalwell go in there? He does occasionally. And, mm. and they'll, but those guys are mostly coming on the day side. Mm. Fox's viewership, the political normative force of Fox and the Republican Party, is in, from the afternoon into the evening. That's where they will, they will hermetically seal it off from anybody that's not going to um, either play the clown character on the left or cheerlead Trump. Carlson, Hannity, Ingram. Right. <clears throat> oh, well. <laughs> yeah. Look. Get the, last, the last question. Okay. Um, since we've established that we're New Yorkers and our votes don't count, basically, if we were, what would you recommend we would do in terms of where should we be giving money? Organizations like Run for Something or things that look at local races, what should we be doing? Because obviously, apart from moving to Florida, we don't have a lot of options. You know, Pennsylvania is not far down the road. Okay? If you can spend a weekend knocking doors, voter contact still has an enormous power in this country. It is amazing. We've studied it a lot. 
I mean, we, went, we studied it a lot in 8 and 12. The Obama people did a great job sending people to knock on doors and ask for people's votes. It's really powerful. Direct personal contact really matters. You can make phone calls. A lot of the campaigns have you know, voice over IP apps. You can make phone calls in targeted states. You can go and, and, and deliver messages that way. You can be engaged on social media in a way that you know, gets you talking to people. You'd be surprised how quickly your network ramifies to people in other states. Hey, by the way, cousin so-and-so, I know you're in Ohio. I want to encourage you to please vote. Boom. You know, those things still matter. Um, trying to win local races is always meritorious. One of the dirty little secrets of the Republican Party. You know, we took over Florida. We elected about 25 sheriffs. And people said, oh, who gives a shit about sheriff's races? Well, guess what? All those sheriffs two years later were in the state house and four years later in the state senate. And we built a plan to do that. And then, so those lower level races is a great way to go out and get engaged and to help. But the Republicans are going to be looking at a narrow slice in those, in those targeted states. And the Democrats need to have a countervailing force knocking doors, making calls, doing the grassroots stuff, doing the social media stuff. Small dollar donations, all those things in those states. And, and so to close out, let's pull it forward. It's November 3rd, 2020. You are a lifelong Republican. Mm-hmm. You are pulling the lever for either the first or second time, perhaps, I assume, for a Democratic president. I did not vote for Donald Trump in 2016. Okay. It doesn't necessarily mean you voted for the Democratic candidate, but fine. Um, did you? <laughs> I ran Evan McMullen's campaign. Ah. So, you know, we, tried, we, well, we gave it a shot. You, we had no money in 90 days to try to put something together. Couldn't quite make but it. But you killed it in Utah. Well, I killed it in Utah. Yeah. Boom! <laughs> uh, how, you, you pull it, how are you going to feel? You, Look, voting against Donald Trump is a merit all of its own. I will never, ever regret not voting for Donald Trump. I will never regret that. I don't care. You know what? Let's say, it's, let's say it's Elizabeth Warren. I don't agree with her on policy. I don't care. You know what? It doesn't matter. She's not insane. She's not evil. She's not venal. She's not corrupt. I can fight her on policy all day long. I want to go back to an America where we fight over marginal tax rates. Wouldn't that be awesome? You know, that'd be fabulous. But right now we're fighting over whether this country is preserved as a democratic system and a republic or whether it becomes a Trumpian, authoritarian, sort of autocratic you know, family regime like North Korea. This is big stuff. And so, you know, I'll live long enough. We'll fight some more ideological battles down the road. We'll go from there. And with that, a few thank yous uh, to Rick Wilson, of course. To Jill Serling and the Scarsdale Adult School, to Scarsdale High School and Dave Barry for making this live stream happen. And thank you all for coming. And thank you, Chris. That was my live podcast event with Rick Wilson. My great thanks to Rick for making the trek out to Westchester County and you for listening. Quick reminders, if you liked this conversation, please give it the five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Also, if you hear something, say something. Tell a friend about Chris Rebeck's conversations. That's all for today. I'll talk with you soon.